we're going to start with a quick fire question, very quick to uh, to test the powers of rapport at Simo between us. Can you get us a piece of paper? Get, just just grab any piece of paper that's near you. Yeah. Yeah, go on then. All right, pen, and I want you to to write down the one thing, just one thing that you would get rid of in selling houses in estate agency. Just one thing you would like to see the back of. Have you done that? Is that on paper? That's a tough one, GB. But but yeah, okay. Fold it yeah. up so I can't see it. Yeah, just sort of. Yeah, yeah. No, let me just let me just tune into the Simo thought train here. Just hang on. Just okay. Well, I think I'm. The, did you write down Phil Spencer? No, we love Phil. We love Pip. You open up my piece of paper there, and you 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 read out what I put down. Ah, uh, oh, how did I not know the cost of portals? Let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of the cost. The right move. Property Podcast with Andrew Simmons and JP. Buying a house, selling a house, investing in a house, this is the podcast for you. You're very welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, it is the Right Move, the Property Podcast. Uh, shall we have a look, Simo, at what the episode's got in it? Yeah, let's do that. So we are going to be talking to a hugely credible and a massively big-hitting guest later on talking about house prices funnily enough current topic of the year yeah i i think when you've got somebody who is so um emblematic of the sector and particularly a highly highly regarded organization within it that's respected by loads of institutions from the uh, bank of england etc to the uh, to the imf it's a, a big home run for us on the podcast isn't it yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've got our um, regular contributor, our friend, very good friend, Charlie Landon, uh, who is going to talk to us regarding 100% mortgages. In in some quarters, it's it's raised hackles. Yeah, it's a, how can I put it, a measured sort of even-handed take from Charlie, I think it's probably fair to say. So we'll hear what he has to say very soon. And somebody's been uh, in the broadsheets again, have they not, Simo? Today's newspaper is tomorrow's chip paper. <laughs> but yes, I have been quoted in some national media outlets uh, recently regarding my comments about Strike buying purple bricks. All systems go, I guess. It's it's all green. So I'd be uh, fascinated to, uh, to hear the Simo take, because I think so far you've... Um, You've certainly pulled no punches, have you? I never pull any punches, JP. For me, the idea of conforming sounds very unexciting. People are really beginning to understand how beautiful this county is. I'm going to be really controversial, JP. I have to agree with her. You're with The Right Move. One hundred percent mortgage, mortgages through and through all mortgage. We're going to get Charlie to shed some light, you know, give us his thoughts in a second. And Charlie says on them. But what, what about you? Where are you with all this one hundred percent mortgage business? I don't particularly like one hundred percent mortgages. Um, I think there's too much risk in the property purchase. I can understand why they exist. You know, at the end of the day, we are. They were used to 
previously have been used and will be used now to try and get people out of the rental cycle and onto the property ladder, you know, as in to buy their own property. However, you know, in the short term, first-time buyers tend to be the 100% mortgage customer. And the first-time buyer wouldn't tend to be in their home for a long period of time. And 100% mortgages are okay if you're going to stay put and ride the market out. Mm. Charlie will say a bit about that as well. So I don't want to steal his thunder. There is a massive risk on 100% mortgage because if you need to sell you know for whatever reason you lose your job you know in a, in a period of economic uncertainty then the property will inevitably be lower in its value and don't forget 100% mortgage will not give you costs of things like stamp duty and legal fees unless of course you get a mortgage that is 100% of the purchase price plus free legals but it, it won't buy you your stamp duty uh, and things like that so there's already a shortfall there but that's also going to cause cause a problem further down the line. Now, as I say, if you're in rented and you want to get on the ladder, then and it's your only option, then absolutely, and you you're going to stay put for a while. Yes, but as a general rule, I think they are highly risky products. I'm not a mortgage advisor. Mm-hmm. I'm merely a surveyor, but I would like to think that at least a ninety five percent mortgage is better than a hundred percent mortgage. Do you think it's the hundred percent mortgage is something that will be detrimental to to what you do to your uh, businesses, or or do you just think it will it will kind of just get swallowed up along the way and just become not so big a deal? Well, it obviously depends on the lender, but let's just say you're buying a property for two hundred thousand pounds, and the lender comes along and says, "Well, that property is actually only worth one hundred eighty thousand pounds," so. They'll lend you against the hundred and eighty thousand pounds, but they won't lend you the two on the two hundred. So you would, as an agent, if somebody says they've got a hundred percent mortgage, there's always a risk that something might happen further down the line to prevent that deal from going through. And obviously, we we need to be mindful of our vendor clients mm. that that is the situation. But you know, if somebody has still got some cash to help them move and decorate and things like that once they've actually got the keys and a a valuer for you know a lender's valuer down values a property then of course that that doesn't matter so much but it matters massively if it's down valued and uh, you don't have the difference in cash because it will end up having either a reneg or you or it'll just collapse as a deal I think it's uh, it's time for 100% Pure Charlie. What do you think, Simo? Let's get him on. Charlie says... Charlie says... Charlie says... 100% Mortgages. I got a message from a follower on Twitter just this week saying the following. I would never have been able to buy a house at 25 years old without a 100% mortgage. I was heartily sick of flaky landlords by then. And it worked out fine. It was the end of 1990. We did go into negative equity, but back in the black when we were ready to move. So I think that's a really good summary of explaining the pros and cons of 100% mortgages. In a nutshell, if you need to be, if you're buying a place to stay in there for a long time, like a minimum of 10 years, and it's your only way into a home that you own, and you are heartily sick of landlords messing you around, and you want to be able to get into a home and stay there, 
then it can work for you. But understand that in the short term, you're almost certainly going to go into negative equity, which means that you won't be able to move until you're out of negative equity. Understand that if for any reason you can't keep up your repayments and it gets repossessed, you're going to end up without the home and also owing the bank the difference. Understand that you will be liable for any of the maintenance costs on the property that you buy with a 100% mortgage. So the boiler goes or the roof goes or any structural stuff. No one else is going to pick up that tab for you. So there's that risk as well. But in the long term, it can work out. So short term, I mean, less than five years, I wouldn't even consider it. I really wouldn't even consider it if you if you're, think you might need to move within less, than five, within less than five years. Especially if there might be unexpected family changes that mean you have to move house. You know, factor that in because that's a situation you don't want to be in. And some people can get carried away with, we're going to own a home, we're going to own a home. And they just want to get in there. And they're looking short term and the 100% mortgage gets you in. But you can end up trapped when you don't want to be. So my view is that only if you're willing to go for the very long term, minimum 10 years, and if you understand the, the financial risks of the maintenance of a property, and if you're certain that your plans won't change and you won't need to move in less than that time, then yeah, 100% mortgages can be good for certain people in certain cases. Do I think they're going to change, make a difference to the housing market and to prices? No, because I don't think that many people are going to take them up. Cheers, Charlie, as ever. And Charlie back on the next podcast, wherever you get them. This is The Right Move with Simo and JP, the property podcast. It's been an unfolding drama that you and so much of uh, the property sector, the industry has had its uh, eye on and <laughs> rolled its eyes countless times. But once we've uh, had our guest on, who is just, you know great, you know hugely credible, big hitting guest on in a second uh, from an amazing organisation, you're going to pick over what's happened between uh, Strike and Purple Bricks, aren't you? Yeah, I think um, you know it's one of those stories that that's rumbled for a little bit, and it's a deal that I believe is going to be short lived. But I also think it's going to be hugely damaging to a uh, you know to the wider public's perception of a state agency. I've got three words, Simo: no market share. Let's chat about it in a bit. <laughs> I've been listening to you a lot. <laughs> so, time to uh, hear from our main guest. So right now, let's talk to Simon Rubinson, uh, who's the chief economist at uh, the RICS, and uh, find out all you need to know about their residential market survey, which I really rate uh, and has a hugely important part to play in the housing market. So Simon, I know what the survey is, and as a member, obviously I contribute to it. Uh, but for anyone who isn't in the know, how would you define it? Yes, Andrew, the... Um... The RICS Residential Market Survey is a sentiment survey that is um, conducted by the staff at RICS, but actually it is really built around the contribution of members of the professional body. And as such, it essentially is an attempt to assimilate the feedback of members who work in the residential sector who are members and who are willing to contribute. Now, just to give you some perspective here, this survey has actually been running since the late 1970s. I've not been at RICS all that time, but it has been running for that length of time. RICS surveys per se are seen, understandably, with this vast credibility. As a body, Simon, how do you get to secure this position as providing 
uh, market intelligence that has arguably the most clout to it. It is, you know, a, a collaboration between people like myself who are staff at RICS, but working very closely with the members who are able to observe what's going on. And while it is only a sentence survey, so it's not hard data, what it's demonstrated over the long period that it's been in existence is its ability not just to identify the relevant issues in terms of the marketplace, but actually to be a bit of a lead indicator. Now, that really is nothing to do with me. I mean, what is quite remarkable is that the members who are contributing are able, when we pull all that information together, to provide that level of foresight. So we're really talking to people who are working at the front line and getting that feedback and that insight has stood the test of time. And I think it's been recognised by whether it is, you know, a range of you know, public bodies, private sector bodies, because of that ability, that uncanny ability to almost be a lead guide to what's going to happen in the market. Yes, so it's trusted by an array of institutions, but for the individual home buyer or investor, what kind of good and usable information lies in it for them? Well, look, I think that as a home buyer, if you're looking at the marketplace, you're trying to understand the dynamics of the marketplace. And that's important when you're thinking about what you wish to pay. Um, it's important to understand, you know, where, you know, whether there's a lot of property on the market or not very much property on the market, whether you're competing with lots of buyers in your locality on your own, perhaps not going on your own, but perhaps there aren't as many buyers in the marketplace in the area that you live. And some of those indicators will be evident in the data that we produce. Um, but on top of that, just getting that feel for what's happening to pricing can influence how home buyers feel about a you know a potential purchase or a potential sale if they are looking to perhaps downsize, for example. I think the point you make is quite an interesting one, but it's not really just about the sort of the the sort of the respect the surveys held amongst both private institutions and public bodies, but actually its relevance for sort of potential home buyers and indeed those who are looking to sell their properties. And I suppose in, in a way there must be a parallel to the uh, the kind of painting of the fourth railway bridge here, Simon, because the survey is so up to date, you know, so frequent that that you must immediately you know one is out and then you're on to the next one well to some extent that that's absolutely true certainly from our point of view and i suppose the members sometimes feel that when we send out the questionnaire you know because it is a monthly survey um i think the high frequency nature of it though does provide that particular um additional sort of level of interest i think that some of the products that come out perhaps with less frequency not only sort of don't capture the public imagination because they're not as visible but they don't seem as relevant as well and i think the fact that it is capturing what's going on on a sort of not quite a day-to-day -day basis but it is a month-by-month -month basis makes it particularly relevant so yes there is an element of having to continually um keep the process running but i think you know that is the context around which you know the housing market and indeed many other markets operate they don't stop so you know it is just a, it is an ongoing process what would you say for you or 
the RACS, has been the most telling or surprising bit of news from the survey so far this year? I don't know about surprising. I mean, certainly the the survey was um, good at identifying the potential for a, a downturn in activity. It now seems to be identifying that the market may stabilise a bit. Um, it's certainly not talking about a significant turnaround yet. And I know the news flow has improved more generally, but the feedback we're getting would justify a little bit of caution. We may be over the worst, but we're not yet in a position where the market is operating in um, in the way that I think many would want it to operate. And by that, I mean, you know, that you can act, execute transactions without some of the challenges that uh, are, are perhaps sort of more prevalent in uh, a market that is perhaps challenged by credit conditions. And we know, obviously, interest rates are going up or perhaps, you know, where unemployment is high and that makes people perhaps particularly nervous. So we're, I think some of the trends that we've picked up, while not necessarily surprising, have helped us to understand where we are in the cycle. The other thing I would also point to, um, Andrew, is the the indicators we get in terms of the lettings market. So what's happening in terms of you know, tenants and landlords. Um, again, it's quite a unique data set there, and you know it continues to highlight issues which are not just relevant for potential landlords, people looking to move into the buy-to-let space, or indeed tenants looking to rent, but actually is really relevant from a public policy point of view. How much does the good and not-so-good news vary from region to region, Simon? Where, where is property strong currently and, and conversely not so strong? There are inevitably regional um, differences in the sort of feedback that we receive. And, you know, what's been quite interesting over the past sort of six months is that some of the negative tone to the headline indicators has not been quite as visible in, for example, and perhaps strangely, Northern Ireland and all for that matter, Scotland. Now, you know, these are big you know, big areas and obviously it's not sort of we we and I should add that that we don't delve down actually to a city level in most cases, although we can observe some of the city trends, but we tend to keep it bigger picture. So English region and then sort of the um devolved regions as well. Um but you know, so there has been um quite a lot of resilience to the numbers as we move perhaps sort of to sort of the types uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland. Certainly not that's not as evident at the moment in Wales. Wales seems to be following perhaps more of the UK trend. And then within the UK, there are sort of areas that have been sort of, again, stronger than others. I would say the capital has been, you know, um, perhaps an area that has been um, finding it a bit more challenging, partly because of affordability constraints. And I think that that's one of the messages that does does seem to come through at the moment that, you know, the... The issue around pricing and, you know, cost with interest rates going up means that, you know, potential buyers are more inclined either to perhaps look at something smaller if they can or perhaps look in cheaper areas. And I suppose that's one of the the messages that's coming through. Looking at the April survey, it manages to talk about some of the downbeat circumstances, but the language is very considered and calm. Is that a necessary instrument in how it's presented? 
Well, I think there's always a temptation, you know, when, when people talk about the housing market and not just the housing market, but, you know, any sort of stories around, you know, maybe interest rates, for example, it may be financial markets. There's a, there's a tendency for um, commentators to want to exaggerate, to tell a story and gain, you know, it's not quite clickbait, but gain attention. And you gain attention by talking a story that is a standout story now i think that we we take a rather different perspective um you know we we're working with members who are sort of getting you know insight up and from up and down the country and we're one way we, we want to be respectful of our insight but also we want to ensure that the feedback the messaging that we get from people working at the cult face is truly reflected in the um way in which we communicate the outputs. So um, there is a very deliberate attempt to avoid being sensational, certainly sensational for being sensational sake. I think that we're in the privileged position that the respect that the survey is held in means that certainly in terms of trying to gain, um, if one's trying to gain sort of media attention or anyone else's attention, there's no need to be sensational. So there is a deliberate attempt to be as you know, considered but that actually, I think, reflects a lot of the insight that we're getting. Given this element of trust that we spoke of almost from the, the off, institutions, I, I assume, must to some point, to some degree, let their decisions be informed by it. So there's a, a good deal of responsibility there. No, absolutely. I mean, we know that it's been sort of suggested by both um, some media respected, highly respected media outlets and indeed some, you know, key policy makers as the best, you know, forecasting uh, tool with regard to the housing market. So we know that there is a lot of attention each time the survey is released, even if it doesn't get, you know, the usual acres of media coverage, we know it's being watched. So there is a lot of responsibility attached, not just to the communication, but to ensuring that we're doing the, the back office work with the diligence that's required. So, you know, these, these things do require a lot of effort. They require technical knowledge. They require quite significant understanding of um, being able to manipulate spreadsheets to ensure that the, the data is communicated and conveyed appropriately. We do, I should add, seasonally adjust the data, so we also have to have the skill to use that technique. And the reason we do that is we know that, you know, in December, normally activity is going to be low because people generally will not be trying to move um, in the week before Christmas. So there's a couple of weeks there which are total write-offs. So if you look at the actual numbers unseasonally adjusted for December... They're not going to tell you much you didn't know, which is that activity is quite subdued. What we aim to do by seasonally adjusting is trying to get an underlying uh, picture of what's going on. And so in effect, trying to work out whether December is actually quite a good December rather than a bad December. Or similarly, the buying season, you know, which kicks off in the spring... Um, we're trying to gauge not just whether there's been an uplift in activity, because you typically would see it there, but we're trying to understand the extent of the uplift in activity relative to what you would normally expect. So there is a lot of technical work that goes into this as well. So, Simon, what do you think of the indices produced by Nationwide and Halifax? Look, I respect all of you. you know, I wouldn't describe it as competition because I think we work alongside each other. I mean, Nationwide and Halifax, for example, will be producing 
price indices that are based around hard data linked to their mortgage approvals. So we will actually quite often map our price index indicator against their hard data. Um, I would look at, you know, a whole range of data sets to inform me when I'm thinking about what's happening in the market. I would look at Rightmove and Rightmove not only has a price series, but it has some of the indicators that we have. And the numbers may not be identical, but the trends are broadly similar. Um, obviously, the right move sample is going to be different from the RICS sample, and that might account for some of that difference. But again, it's useful to be seeing what's what's happening or what other people are saying. And similarly, I would say Zoopla as well. So I would look at all of these data sets. Some of them are complementary. Some may be very similar. Some, may, you know, in some cases, we're talking about differences, hard data against sentiment. But you know, anyone trying to get a proper picture of what's going on needs to look at all of them. The difference is, I think, that ours over the years has been shown to be a good quality and reliable lead indicator. And it's an, indeed a lead indicator of some of those other series as well. Thanks so much for your time, Simon. It's been great catching up with you uh, on The Right Move. You're with The Right Move. Subscribe to us now on all major podcast apps. Well, Simo, I think I said pretty recently on the podcast that, that maybe we should get hold of uh, uh, an insolvency expert because this strike, a purple bricks deal that's, uh, that's going through now, has gone through, it was, it was raising all sorts of questions. I mean, I... I don't know, maybe controversially said, when you look at all the debt involved, is this trading whilst insolvent? Um, but anyway, suffice to say, um, that's an open-ended thing. So if there is anybody uh, with us on the podcast uh, that's that's listening to this that can give us a, an inside view, an official view in terms of that, business rescue, whatever, please do, I think. It'd be, it'd be great to, to hear from them, Simo. Yeah, absolutely it would. And uh, it'd be, be very insightful because we're not insolvency experts but from what we're seeing it certainly doesn't doesn't prove good reading um and uh you know at the moment the last so at the day of recording we are seeing the purple bricks share value dropping off a cliff to as low as 60p a share that just proves what people are thinking of this nobody wants to invest in it and strike for example has got some big investors who are being rather rather patient i would say with strike because they are being bankrolled and i just wonder whether there's a maybe i'm being cynical but maybe this is all about you know there's no such thing as bad publicity purple bricks demise does absolutely prove that people are returning to traditional estate agency and professional estate agency at that purple bricks is a faceless call center organization that you will pay for a service up front and yes there'll be somebody local that can help you with viewings if you pay extra for it but strike will list your property for free now i said right at the height of the show what was my main thing that i wanted to remove in a state agency portal cost portal costs exactly now if i tell you quite openly that i am paying per business mid thousand pounds a month mm -hmm. for my listings in fact i i will be paying with all of my portal costs i'm paying around about 
£2,000 a month plus VAT per branch, that is. Um, and I'm probably paying low figures on that compared to some others who will be paying uh, paying for additional marketing spend, uh, which is frankly... But you imagine your strike and you are listing homes and they have to have... The way the portals work is in postal code region. They will have to be paying thousands a month for their portal listings. How on earth can they give that away for free? Well, if I could tell you how they give it away for free. It's because they base their model on referrals and getting other fees back to them from other potentially slightly unscrupulous means. But a business that is in debt to the tune of strike, buying a further debt-ridden business just proves how can an investor have any sense someone with a modicum of intelligence will know that there's something wrong here and it's just going to circle and circle and circle and go straight down the plug hole and we are frankly going to see this fall from grace now with two businesses who will want to continue to invest and bankroll a business that is paying its directors stupid money you know telephone numbers when it's making such a huge loss what i've said in in the press is that the online model just doesn't work because what it doesn't do is it doesn't put that customer first a vendor and a buyer needs someone who can negotiate a deal who knows the locality who knows the value of property who can turn around and say when you get buyers who try and believe that they know everything about buying and selling property where they will say well that house sold for this on the same street you know you need to have the ability as an agent to say why a price difference is a price difference why one house is worth more than another where am i going to find my buyers to a vendor where am i going to market this how am i going to um treat this particular asset that is valuable and not undersell it i valued a house last year which actually went on the market with strike because they chose to list it at a ridiculous figure Mm. because that was what the vendor wanted everybody in the locality was saying how ridiculous that that sale that price is it didn't sell it's still it was withdrawn it did not sell now, Strike put all that effort into marketing that property and didn't get a sale. Now, I, as a traditional and professional agent, need to invest in my sales. So I need to invest and make sure that if I'm going out to bring in my photographer, I'm going out to do all this marketing on a property, hmm. I need to know that the value of that property as accurate as I can be. Because... Why would I waste my time and effort into something that I'm, I don't think I'm going to ever sell? And I think that's the issue. We've got all of this trying to gain market share. But as you rightly say, it's certainly in my location, they, they have a zilch market share. I think that just proves that, um, you know, you, you need to be able to talk to someone. You need to have that hand-holding. Absolutely, you do. It's like this sort of grandstanding marketing 
beauty contest, uh, I suppose. It's all, it's all just showboating, you know, crazy Australian telephone number, money involved. No, it doesn't seem to be any real plan. Um, suffice to say, you'll not be investing in any uh, Purple Brick shares anytime soon, Simo. Sadly not. Uh, unless, of course, we're going to be proven that they will be changing their model. Don't forget, there was a, there was a guy who was a former P- Purple Bricks agent who openly offered it was in in the press he offered to buy purple bricks for a pound um i can't remember his name now but it was a few it was a few months ago mm. and he t- and he said i'll buy it for a pound but i will completely change its dynamic i will completely change the model mm. i will turn it into a self-employed model yes. you know a bit like say exp or the agency mm. or uh, remax or one of these um type of american style models that we've we've also talked about yet that's obviously been dismissed and i genuinely hope i genuinely hope this gets brought up at the competitions and markets committee because it does not look good it looks like you know we are just seeing belittling estate agency and uh and that's not a great place to be Well, we are uh, out of time. That's uh, sufficient wisdom on that saga for uh, this episode. Uh, thank you, of course, to uh, Simon, Simon Rubinson, the Chief Economist at Ricks, for being a fantastic guest. Thank you always to Charlie as well. And, of course, thank you very much to you, Simo. No worries. We will see you on the next one. 10-4, JP. Selling, buying, investing. Are you making the right move?